0: Open up there. We're just going to read really just the first verse to kind of kick off the chapter. And we'll see pretty quickly here Paul's thoughts and intents as we've covered Uh, really 9, 10, and 11 have a similar theme. And so we'll kind of dive into that. So Romans 11 and verse 1. If I've got a volunteer to read, that would be great. Just the first verse. Lance, awesome. Okay, so how did we end chapter 10? If you look up at chapter 10, he talks about here about in verse 21, uh, but to Israel he says, All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and naysaying people. And we talked, uh, or in the notes rather, it covered this, that when you look back at that verse, how it ends, we know Paul's heart. All of chapter 9, all of chapter 10 is about seeing the Israel nation, the nation of Israel rather, come to Christ, to see the Israelites come to know Jesus, to see the Jews be saved. And I love that verse in verse 21 of chapter 10 because that's the heart of God, isn't it? He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to constantly, all day long, stretch forth my hands unto what kind of people are the Jews at this point in time, the nation of Israel. There's two things naysaying and disobedient, not good things. They're rebellious, right? They're not following up to the things of God. And then we get in the chapter 11, verse 1, and he starts off by saying, I say then, has God cast away his people? So what's the answer to that question? Has God cast away his people? Who are his people in that verse? Israel, right? Now we know what's the only way to come to relationship with God. How do I have eternal life? The only way I get eternal life is what? Through Christ. Does being—and we covered this, actually, Paul spends a lot of time early in Romans, right? He actually speaks about this very issue in chapter 2 when he talks about the Jews being guilty before God. Does a Jewish person with the heritage of Abraham, the lineage of that nation, have any kind of an advantage in the area of salvation over a Gentile non-Jew? There's no benefit. Paul says that, right? There's no benefit. There's no extra blessing you get. If you're out of Christ, you're out of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ, right? He's not the respecter of persons. So when he says his people here, I'm not trying to get think that, you know, because there was actually some teaching in the New Testament, right? You had to be saved, but add the law into it, right? The Judaizers would teach that. Well, you're, you're a Christian, but you have to be circumcised. So I'm not saying we need to follow the Jewish way of thinking here, but why is Paul saying it that way? Because what are the Jews maybe thinking at this point? Chapter 9, we read the sovereignty of God. Chapter 10, we read about the choice and the choosing of the people that need to respond to Christ. Remember, early on, Paul's probably defending a little bit because the Jews hate him. They, they don't trust his message. So he said, in 9, and God's witness in me through the Spirit of God, So he gets to chapter 11, and what could the Jews who are really thinking through what Paul is saying think God's done with us? God's just going to cast us away. All the promises of the Old Testament mean nothing, because now it's all about the Christian, all about the church. So Paul, by God's direction, in anticipation of that, because remember, he's writing this. They haven't read it yet. Could you imagine being in the church at Rome, reading through this letter, watching the looks on people's faces? By the way, it's taken us— I think technically we started this series, when did I start Romans? Last fall? Last September maybe? It's taken us this long to get through 11, uh, 10 chapters. Could you imagine in one setting, if somebody opened the book of Romans for the very first time, and started reading it to a church? I mean, could you imagine what your brain would be doing as you're trying to take in all of this information over and over again? And so when you read this here, he's kind of anticipating a Jewish person that's hearing this is going to go, God's done with us. He's casting us away. Now, Paul does this a lot, right? This phrasing. Look at how he phrases that question. What kind of question would we call this? A rhetorical question. That means it doesn't require an answer, right? Has God cast away his people? What's the answer? God forbid. We would just say no, (laughs) right? Now, Paul's used that language before, hasn't he? Up to this point, even in Romans. Can anyone think of an example where he said something similar to that? in the previous 10 chapters? Yeah, right. Do I sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? God forbid, right? There's other examples in the book of Romans up to this point where he asks, it's Paul's writing style. Um, It's not him being sarcastic as much as it is, he's asking a question that has an obvious answer. Because what did we just end chapter 10 with? Does chapter 10, verse 21 sound like a God who's cast away the nation of Israel and cast away the Jews and cast away his people? What, and actually, what's, what is the opposite? He's his hands out. Not, I've cast you away, I'm reaching out to draw you in. Casting you away would imply, I'm not, I want no interest in you, no desire to have a relationship with you. Now, what will be true one day when we leave this world and we stand before him as judge? The Bible does say that we will be separated and some will be cast away, right, into hell. But that's not happened here yet. Why? Because they're listening to the words of God. They have an opportunity for repentance. This is also touching on the reality that there will be a future restoration of Israel. Paul's talking here about something to come. Not necessarily what has happened, but what will take place. So in your notes here, um, just quick review. Chapter 9, we discussed the sovereignty of God. Chapter 10, we talked about the free will or the choice of man. Um, However, in both of these chapters and at various parts in the book of Romans, we looked at the rebellion and rejection of Christ by Israel. We have also made note of the apostle's heart for his people. Chapter 11, we see that Paul speaks to the idea that God is not done with Israel or has not abandoned them. remember back in chapter 9, we talked about the Jews feeling like God was unfaithful to them, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? A people that rejected the Messiah and crucified him are now saying, God, we don't think you're very faithful to us. Like, do you ever stop and think about the, the arrogance of the Jewish people at this point? Like, if I was God, I'd be like, wait, so I sent you my Messiah, my son, to lead you into salvation and freedom. You mocked him, ridiculed him, crucified him, completely unfaithful to what I've told you to do, and now you're going to blame me for being unfaithful. It's just amazing how human beings can be. We flip it around so often. So when we see this idea here, he's reaffirming some things that he said back in chapters 9 and 10. So, chapter 11, verse 1, God has not cast away his people. Uh, again, in anticipation of the Jews hearing the message of the book of Romans and thinking God has cast them away, he opens up with a question that in the Greek requires a no for an answer. God is still, uh, still has a desire for Israel to repent and trust in Christ as we see offered to them at the end of chapter 10. So, what Paul then does is he offers them some evidence that that is true. And I love this about Paul's writings. Paul will often make a statement about God or something we're supposed to do for God or in reaction to what God has done for us. But then he doesn't just leave it there. He instantly follows it up with some proofs or some evidences as to why that should be. I'll give you another example. We're not there yet, but chapter 12 and verse 1, very popular verse. As I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What is Paul saying we should do in Romans 12.1? What should we do in Romans 12.1? What's Paul saying? This is what I'm begging you to do. Offer our bodies, our lives, ourselves as what? A sacrifice. A living sacrifice, right? Holy. What does that word holy mean? Does it mean perfect and flawless? Set apart, right? Remember the word "holy" means to be set apart for a divine purpose, right? We've talked about this before that the the cups in the temple or the instruments of things in the temple those a cup was a cup, right? The cup didn't magically become something more than a cup. But why was God so upset when the Babylonians took that and started using it for their party and celebration type drinks? Because they were using something that was designated. Holy. Set apart for holy purpose. They were using it for worldly purposes and pleasure. That was the issue. A cup is a cup, right? Your body, my body, is made up of the exact same things as somebody who doesn't know Christ's body. We're earth and dirt and clay, right? We're just clay and earth pots. But when we've received the gospel, we are now set apart. We're not, we're not consumed with the things of the world. But I love what Paul says here. Paul doesn't have to tell us a reason why we should set our bodies apart and live as a sacrifice unto God. He doesn't have to, does he? It just makes sense. If I, if I know the salvation God offers me and I receive Christ as my Savior, I should want to do that, right? I shouldn't have to be told, this is why you should do that. But what's the evidence or what's the reasoning Paul says, this is why you should set your bodies apart and be a living sacrifice? In verse 1 of Romans 12, what's the, what's the proof or the evidence or the reasoning? says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. He's using the mercy of God. He actually says plural, mercies. He's saying because of the mercies of God, you should do this in reaction to that. What's the mercies of God? What does he mean by that? Tell me some mercies of God. Start with the big one. Salvation. You want to talk about mercy? I deserve wrath. He gives me eternal life. What other mercies does God show to us? Yeah, he gifts us the Holy Spirit, not for a season, which was, would be fair because that's what the Old Testament believers or saints rather had. He gifts us a deeper relationship, right? We're sealed unto the day of redemption by the Spirit of God for also teaching us and rebuking us and leading us into all truth and all these things. Uh, praying for us, Right? When I don't know what to pray, what happens? Spirit of God prays for me. Now, remember, Christ is the mediator. The Spirit's not taking Christ's place in that moment. The Spirit is merely in agreement with what Christ would be doing, who's praying for us as well. Any other mercies of God that would cause me to think I need to live for him? Salvation is the biggest one. He gifts us his Holy Spirit, which equips us to live this life for his glory. Any other mercies? Okay. Okay, the relationships, yep, the relationships he blesses us with. What's the, go ahead. He gives to just the basic mercies and Yes. Yes. But, yeah. All right. this applies to not just, not only believers should be living as a sacrifice, an unbeliever who's not living for God, they need to be a living sacrifice. Now, they have to receive Christ to do that but they're receiving mercy, right? We call that common grace, right? When, a, when an unbeliever has a child, that's a great mercy of God. It's a miracle. When, when an unbeliever gets a promotion at work, making a little more money, that's a, that's a blessing of God. That's a mercy of God, right? When God heals someone who didn't even know God, but yet they're healed of some disease, that's common grace. God is just showing his grace and mercy. What's the reason for that, by the way? To lure, to draw, right? To allure them and say, yes, I want a relationship with you, and it glorifies God, right? So when you see this here, Paul saying, man, these mercies that God has extended to you should motivate you to live as a sacrificial life. You don't need to tell me that because if I know Christ— or if I've at all experienced the mercies of God, I know that to be true. But he's like adding that in there. I'm only pointing that out because that's something kind of common to Paul's writings. We see it throughout the book of Romans. We see it in his epistles. Often Paul will say, now you should do this, and here's why. Because God has done this for you. Why should I forgive? He writes this in Corinthians, I believe. Why should I forgive? Because God has forgiven me. I'm sorry, not Corinthians. That would be Ephesians, Ephesians talks about the idea of forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. What I should forgive, what's the motivation? Because God forgave me in Christ. So that's the idea here. We need to constantly remind ourselves that's what Paul's doing. There's reasons behind all of this. And so he gets into, in the first couple of verses here, he shows some evidences as to why God has not cast away the Jews or Israel. So verses 1 through 4, we see the evidence that God has not cast them away. We read verse 1, if I can get a volunteer to read 2. Through four. That would be great. One more volunteer to read. Verses two through four. Sandra, awesome. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what, what not what the scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. And verse four. Okay, so in verses 1 through 4, we see some evidences here, and I put these in your notes. The first evidence that Paul gives is what? Exhibit A, if you will, is Paul offers himself as evidence or testimony that God has not cast away Israel because he says, I am an Israelite, right? I'm one of you. I'm of the same line. I'm of the line of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. If God saved me, then God will save you if you repent and turn from your sin. Paul's salvation experience uh, does not parallel our salvation experience today. Think about Paul's salvation experience. Tell me what happened with Paul when he was converted to Christ. What was he doing? Where was he going? Okay, he was on the road to Damascus, and what was he going there to do? Yeah, he says, I'm, I'm, and I, we talked about this last week, he was going after those that called, right? The called, that's the term they used for the Christians in the early church. I love that phrase. What happened on the road to Damascus? You guys know the story. What's that? Okay, why did he go blind? Well, the light shone, right? Knocked everyone to the ground. Then what happens? He he heard the Lord speak, right? He gets up blind. He's led into the city, right? There, God reveals to him what's going on the call for his life, okay? Is that how you were saved, by the way? Was that your salvation experience? Not quite, yeah. I didn't see a light. I could see after I was done praying the prayer, okay? I think if I picked my head up from praying the subject prayer and I was blind, I'd be like, I did something wrong. I said something wrong. I'm struck with blindness because I must have been in rebellion or something, okay? I didn't hear the voice of God, okay? So when Paul references his testimony, it's interesting to think, why would he use that? Now, we know he references testimony a lot, but why would that pertain to the Jews? Why would that be something of interest to them, Again, we have not seen Christ. We were not thrown to the ground blind or heard his voice. So why does Paul start with his own testimony? Some suggest, when I was reading in a couple different commentaries, uh, some suggest Paul is using his own testimony as a pattern for how Israel will come to Christ. Zechariah 12, uh, 10 through 13, uh, uh, chapter 12, verses 10 through chapter 13, verse 1. There you go. Um, Speak of Israel seeing him when he returns and repenting. We're recognizing him as Messiah. This, oh, I'm sorry. I thought I put that in your notes. Nope, nope. That's the next, that's like exhibit C. It's uh, Zechariah 12.10 through thirteen one. The idea of basically, some have suggested what Paul was doing was saying, listen, when he returns, right, in all of his glory... So we'll see the glory of Christ, that when he returns, that the nation of Israel will recognize him as Messiah, repent, and trust in him as Savior. That is that idea of when Paul really understood who Jesus was, he instantly believed, right? What are you having to do, Lord? Because he saw—he understood the glory that Christ was displaying. So that's why some have suggested—this is not dogmatic— Um, It could have been Paul using his testimony, as any of us would have used our testimony. But some have suggested maybe there was a connection there because he's speaking specifically to the Jews, to the nation of Israel here. Um, Exhibit B, or the next evidence that he gives, is the foreknowledge and faithfulness of God. The foreknowledge and faithfulness of God. Uh, Real quick, what does foreknowledge mean? Yeah, I knew this before it happened. Right? I knew that this person would be saved before they were saved. I knew this was gonna happen before it happened. God has foreknowledge. Paul references that foreknowledge and faithfulness in verse 2. It says, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Want ye not what the scripture saith of Isaiah Elias. Uh, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying. And so God is going to—or Paul's speaking about the foreknowledge, that he foreknew this people. So because he foreknew them, he's going to be faithful to them. Uh, And then we see that kind of carries through. uh, Exhibit C, or the third point, Uh, Paul offers an Old Testament quotation. uh, Verses 3 and 4 reference who. Who's 3 and 4 about? Okay, and what's happening here? You guys remember this? Elijah's feeling pressure, right? What is Elisha or Elisha? Elijah, I do that all the time. Elijah, Elisha. I wish it was like Elijah and Bill, you know? Then it'd be so much easier to know the second guy is Bill. Like that would be easier than, I mean, if you're Elijah, what's your name? Mark. No, you won't do. Elisha? Yeah, come on. They'll confuse people. Let's go. Okay? So what happens with Elijah? He makes a complaint against God or he kind of complains. Yeah. Yeah, because look what he says. They've killed thy prophets. Dig down thine altars. Man, they've murdered your prophets. Their altars are destroyed. Nobody is following you, God, but me. Do you hear? I mean, he's broken, right? He's maybe fearful. Maybe he's frustrated, okay? I mean, listen, here's the reality. Someone told me this years ago. And we have to be careful because pride is a funny thing in the church. We can actually think we're being very holy, but we're really being prideful. Um, but I have found it to be true that, that often in our Christian lives, the closer we get to Christ in our walk, the more we abide with him, the more we will see the inconsistency of other believers. That doesn't mean they're not saved, but as I'm growing closer to the Lord and I see apathy in other believers' lives, that's going to seem more apparent to me than when I was apathetic. Make sense? I'm, and I'm on fire, I'm burning for the Lord, and I look around and nobody's— Nobody is like me. They're all walking their own way. And what does God do? I love God's response. Uh, it, it, this reference here is the one that Sandra alluded to, First uh, Kings nineteen ten and verse 14, just to kind of talk about the idea. Uh, While it is true the history of Israel is full of apostasy and idolatry, God has preserved a remnant of true believers. Elijah felt he was all alone standing for God, which is how we can feel, but we know it is not true. Uh, the expression, when you look at the verse here, uh, verse 4, but what saith the answer of God? That phrase, the answer, when God spoke to Elijah, it means a divine response. A divine response. What was the divine response of Elijah's complaint? He received a divine response and therefore a certain response. It was guaranteed. This was not just opinion, it was fact. Uh, God reserved how many? 7,000 that had not yet bowed their knee. 7,000. Elijah, I'm all alone. Mm, There's 7,000. I've reserved, I have a remnant there. Now, that doesn't mean that they were robots. That They didn't choose anything. Some of you have to say, well, God made that 7,000 be a a set apart. No, there were 7,000 that chose to stand with Christ, to stand with God, rather, and God knew who that 7,000 was. Think about that. He said 7,000, but God knew every name, every position, every every moment of their lives. He knew exactly where they were at that very moment when that's happening. But yet Elijah felt under great persecution. And listen, if you're standing in front of hundreds of prophets that want to murder you, I, you'd feel a little pressure. When you're persecuted, you feel like you're alone. So I'm not saying Elijah's not like us and we're not like him. I'm just saying when we feel that way, we can't let our feelings dictate what's truth. We have to go, no, God has set aside a remnant. And I believe while this is speaking to Israel, understand context, this is Israel, but I think we can take the principle and say, as a church, we might feel alone sometimes. As a Christian, media and all this, all where's, there's, the church is dying and there's—no, no, no. It's amazing what God is doing in his global plan to see people come to Christ. Uh, the truth is— God reserved 7,000 men for his glory. The Northern Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom. So you guys know real quick, we've got the Northern Kingdom. How many tribes is that? How many tribes were in the Northern Kingdom? A little Bible history. Ten. Then you've got the Southern Kingdom. How many were there? There you go. That's the easy one, right? Okay. We know the Southern Kingdom is taken into captivity later than the Northern Kingdom. Who takes the Southern Kingdom into captivity? That would be the Babylonian captivity. Does anyone remember who takes the northern kingdom, which happened a little bit before the southern kingdom went, the northern kingdom in captivity? Assyrians. Yeah, very good. So when this happens, some have suggested, well, the northern kingdom was taken away, never to return. But the southern kingdom returned because there was a root. What was that root? Right? That's the line of David, Jesus, so on and so forth. So it had to be a line there. Some have actually noted that the northern kingdom was not completely done away with not completely eradicated. Even after the Assyrian captivity, there were a few of believing Israel from the ten tribes who returned to form the nucleus of the Hebrew population in Galilee during the days of Paul. So even though as a kingdom it wasn't returned, it wasn't brought back as the ten tribes and so on and so forth, but there was a remnant that even returned from the Assyrian captivity that was the nucleus of those that would later be the Hebrew population in Galilee during the days of Paul's ministry. Think about that for a moment. All that God would orchestrate together so that that took place. It's amazing to see how we tend to think, oh, there's no hope, there's no way. God says, no, 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 I'm working a plan. I've got a remnant. I've not cast you away. Now, not all of you will believe, but there's a remnant that I will hold still in faith. Verses five and six, we see this remnant is by election of grace, and we'll get to that next week. Okay? So any uh, questions, comments, or thoughts on what we've covered tonight? Anthony liked my segue. That was good. No, we're not a segue you rot. Never mind. I'm not going to go into that right now. Any questions, comments, or thoughts before we wrap up for the night, guys? All right. I pray it's been an encouragement to think about the fact that God is in control that God is working a plan. And even though we may feel like everything is kind of chaotic, it is not. There's no such thing with a sovereign God. All right? So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for tonight. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a God that has a plan, that you are over all of these things, Lord. And I I can only imagine what Elijah felt. And, Lord, I pray that you would know my heart um, that I in no way uh, think less of Elijah uh, a man that stood for you in the midst of great case, craziness, a great persecution, um, did things that, that, by your hand, that miracles that were wrought to bring glory to you. But Father, I know that I can compare myself to Elijah in this sense that that I felt that way. Uh, I felt like no one else was really as passionate as I, as I am or was, and and I can tend to think I'm, I don't say it out loud, but maybe even a little better than someone uh, because well they're not you know, as on fire, as serious about this as I am. And it's so easy, Lord, when we think that way to to disregard our own weaknesses, our own apathy. Lord, I pray that all of us would learn that no matter where we find ourselves, that you have a remnant of believers that are, you're doing something in your church in this world today. And I know that in our country, uh, because of media, because of things that we see, sometimes we're getting a skewed perception of what reality really is and what really is going on around us. But I'm so thankful there are churches right here. We don't have to go overseas to see what you're doing and how you're working. Uh, There are churches right here in our own country that are flourishing. Uh, Lord, some are growing in numbers. Some are small churches that have always been small churches. And Lord, may always be small churches. But yet, those believers are growing, making disciples, and leading others to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in you in all things. Thank you for this word. And we pray that you'd be glorified in all that was said and done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you guys are dismissed. (coughs) Thank you so much for coming tonight. Have a great, great night. a great day tomorrow. Enjoy the weather. And uh, yeah, have a great week.